This series is essentially uh, an emphatic response uh, to the cultural belief that the Bible is nothing more than a bunch of stories haphazardly piecemealed together uh, that are not in any way connected. Rather, uh, this series is meant to argue that the Bible is one glorious, overarching, uh, divine, redemptive, historical drama with the artistic, creative God of the universe as its author. Uh, weaving it together into this masterpiece. This series is an emphatic response to the cultural belief uh, that uh, the Bible is nothing more than a bunch of rules uh, to to be obeyed. Rather, uh, this series is the argument that the Bible does have some rules in it, but the Bible is not ultimately about you or me uh, and what we do or don't do, but rather is ultimately about God and what he has done in redeeming man. This series is an emphatic response to the cultural belief that the Bible is nothing more than a book of heroes, people to be uh, emulated, to model your life after. Um, Is there a sense in which as we see people uh, obeying God that we imitate them as they imitate Christ? Yes and amen to that. But the Bible is not ultimately a book of heroes to be emulated. In fact, most of the characters in the Bible fall on their face at some point. Rather, the Bible is a redemptive story meant to point to one true hero who binds the entire story together, and his name is Jesus. So welcome to the greatest story ever told. Uh, If you're new, uh, just to catch you up to speed, we began this series as uh, anyone should begin the the engagement of a story, which is by uh, flipping over the back of the book to the, the dust cover about the author snippet. Um, Anytime that you engage a story, it's helpful to know something about the author. Usually the author's experiences, uh, the author's worldview tend to shape that very story that you're entering into. And the same is true about the author of the Bible. Just so happens to be that the author of the Bible is the God of the universe. And so uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at some particular attributes, characteristics of God that are helpful to know in order to, to view this story rightly. And if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to uh, that first sermon online from this particular series. And then after looking at the author, we spent a couple times, looking, uh, a couple weeks, I should say, looking at the creation story in uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Genesis 1 gives us this panoramic view of creation as God sets the stage for his divine Uh, redemptive historical drama, hanging uh, theater lights in in the the cosmos in the form of sun, moon, and stars, creating the domains of of, uh, land and sky and sea, and creating a supporting cast of creatures uh, to participate in this story, inhabiting those various domains. And then in Genesis 2, we go from a panoramic view to a a zooming in of the camera, so to speak, on man in in God's perfect utopian garden sanctuary of Eden in glad submission to God as their covenant creator. And so you have God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, a garden filled with a thousand tokens of God's love and provision for them. And then there's that one tree that they're told not to eat of that makes everyone uncomfortable. And then in Genesis 3, we, we see uh, the story move in a different direction. The, the antagonist, the villain, none other than Satan himself, enters into the story. And he calls into question the trustworthiness of God's word. Did God really say? He, he paints a picture of a world in which rather than playing by God's rules, Man can call the shots, a life of self-determination, a life of judicial autonomy. Rather than God's world and God's word, it can be your world and your word. And in the moment, the forbidden becomes a delight uh, to the eyes. And our first parents, Adam and Eve, sin against God. 
and they find that they don't feel like God at all. Rather, they feel dirty. They feel exposed. They feel guilty. They feel ashamed. And they do what most human beings do when they see their sin for what it is. They attempt to cover it up, which we've been doing ever since. The very joy that Adam and Eve were created for to bask in the presence of God is the very thing that they run from like a couple of fugitives. What was once an open, honest relationship with God becomes a game of cosmic hide-and-go-seek in the garden, a game that man can never win because God knows our hiding spot before he ever even, quote-unquote, closes his eyes and counts to ten. As we pick up the story this morning, Adam and Eve find themselves standing before a holy and perfect God as the, the garden becomes a courtroom. And the question becomes, how will God respond to the first act of cosmic treason in human history. Will will he sweep it under under the rug? Will will he uh, bring about a curse and judgment with no hope? Or or will we see um, God function as both a loving father and a just judge? How is this gonna play out? If you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be in verses 14 through 24 this morning. If you don't own a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you nearby. Um, feel free to grab that Bible and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible for free. It's yours. We're excited for you to own a Bible. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive into this morning's text and get to work. God, I find myself increasingly grateful for this series. I think these particular chapters of the Bible, um, these first three, are chapters that for Christians we've oftentimes read so many times that um, they can become mundane to us. And so there's something sweet about slowing down in such a way that that we feel the ecstasy of, of a creation created good. And we feel the weight, even going back to last week's service, the heaviness of the shift in the story when man sins against God and and suffering uh, follows suit, entering the world um, as we know it, a world uh, that longs for redemption, uh, as do its inhabitants, God. And um, so I pray for the same thing this morning. As we see uh, the first declaration of hope, of, of the promise of a hero to come, that we would feel Um, the increasing uh, weight of that as well. Um, God, that we would feel great joy as we encounter texts that many of us have read a number of times before, um, that that you would move in our hearts. God, would you do that? So that as we leave this place this morning, uh, we would both have eyes to see the effects of the fall all around us, but would also experience the great hope of a a sin-conquering, serpent-crushing Savior who is to come and who has come. God, I lift all of this up to you by the power of the Spirit in the name of that sin-conquering, Satan-crushing Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So God immediately begins to execute judgment here, sentencing the guilty parties. There's no, there's no jury, but rather God is the judge and the jury. 
before we even get into the decrees of judgment themselves, it, it, it's really critical to address something here um, because some in this room might say, um, because at large, there are many um, in the world we live in who would say this, that for God to judge is unfair. In fact, some would say it this way, that wrath and judgment are exactly what's wrong with religion in the first place. That's why um, I've shifted to atheism or agnosticism uh, or uh, fill in the blank with whatever worldview um, that would be antagonistic toward the Christian worldview might be. Many people have uh, turned from the Christian worldview because they believe this to be true, that wrath and judgment are exactly what's wrong with religion. To which I would say it's easy to say that, that wrath and judgment are problematic until you want justice, right? I'm not going to do this, so don't worry, especially if you are new and you come up and, and we get a chance to meet. But hypothetically, if, if I were to come up and punch you as hard as I can in the face after the service, my guess would be that uh, at that point, the idea of justice would sound really appealing to you. Right? It, when we're the victim of injustice, all of a sudden we want justice in the world. None of us is screaming for pedophiles and rapists who live in our community to be let off the hook. In fact, for any judge to sweep those crimes under the rug uh, would, would uh, create a cry for that judge to be disbarred from the bench immediately. We would declare that's not a good judge. Right? Now take that line of thinking and apply it to a perfect God. The more righteous the judge and the more heinous the crime, the more horrific the punishment must be. That you could say it this way, an infinitely heinous crime against an infinitely holy God deserves an infinitely horrific punishment. That for, for God to sweep crimes of cosmic treason under the rug would make him unfit to sit on the bench as judge. That God's character is at stake here in Genesis chapter 3. And so he sentences the guilty parties. The, the language here in verse 14 is a bit ambiguous. Most, most scholars, most theologians, most commentators agree that this is a, um, a declaration of judgment on Satan himself. Um, but there are some scholars who, who go so far as to say even serpents, the, these particular creatures that were created in Genesis chapter 1, are cursed as a result of the fall. The reason that some argue this um, and, and you see it uh, actually as you go through the scriptures, uh, this language uh, of bowing down in the dust and licking the dust used elsewhere to communicate uh, humiliation. Um, when, when you say, and you probably don't say this because it would be super nerdy if you did, but um, when, when you sit at a traffic light and you have this eat my dust mentality with the person over in the lane to your left or your right, what, what are you communicating I want to humiliate that person, right? This is a moment of humiliation for them as I emerge victorious. If this is a punishment of the creature, why would that be? How do you explain that? Well, think about it this way. If you're a parent and your child were to get hit and killed, God forbid, by a candy apple red Camaro, you're going to have a feeling in your gut every time you're on the road and you see a candy apple red Camaro, are you not? There's an association that you make, not only with the driver, but with the car itself. Similarly, if this is what God's doing, if there's a, a twofold form of God's judgment here, what God's doing then is cursing the creature because it's the vehicle Satan uses to bring death into his good story. But more important than that would be the, the judgment of Satan himself. Look at verse 15, which makes that clear. It says this, God says, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, This is what's known as as the proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first, like a prototype. Evangelium is where we get our word evangelism, good news. So so you have the first good news, the first declaration uh, that uh, there's a hero to come. And notice this, that this begins not with a, a hopeful well-wishing of sorts, but rather with a promise. God says not, I hope to, or, or my goal is, my game plan is, but rather, I will. He says, I will create enmity. I will create hostility between you, Satan, and human beings. So there's a declaration here that Satan is the villain. He was very crafty at the beginning of Genesis 3. It's made crystal clear now that man is not to trust him, that that man is to treat him as an adversary. This is why Satan has to disguise himself as an angel of light. It's why he has to use subtle tactics because if you were to see him undisguised, you'd immediately feel enmity toward him, hostility toward him. We now know with crystal clarity that Satan is the villain and should be treated as such. And secondly, and more importantly, God says, I will ultimately triumph over you, Satan. Notice that that the ultimate battle is not between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. This is really interesting and important. Rather, the ultimate battle is between the offspring of the woman and the serpent himself. God says, he, one of Eve's descendants, shall bruise your head, Satan, So there's a a hero coming. There's a promise of a hero, a descendant of Eve, who will uh, come along and ultimately crush Satan's head. Yet it won't come without the bruising of the hero himself. Does that sound familiar? Hebrews 2.14 says this. Since therefore the children, that's you and me, human beings, share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is Jesus, Likewise partook of the same things of flesh and blood, took on a human body, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That that Jesus, whose lineage traces back to Eve, this is really cool. Go read Luke chapter 3 this week. You get the entire genealogy from Jesus all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3. That Jesus, whose lineage traces back to Eve, takes on a killable body so that he can destroy Satan and defeat death through his own death. That's what John Owen uh, declares in his great work, the death of death in the death of Christ. This is why when Jesus shows up on the scene in in Mark's gospel, the, the demons cry out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In other words, I know you're on a mission to crush the evil one and his minions. Are you gonna do that now, Jesus, or is that gonna come later? Because we know it's gonna happen. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter two. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do so? Paul says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is what we call the doctrine of Christus victor. Jesus is our victory over the powers of evil, namely Satan and his demons. 
And this promise goes back as far as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You don't have to wait till the New Testament to get there. You don't have to wait till the prophets start prophesying of the coming Messiah. You get it right here in this morning's text. That there's coming a descendant of, of Eve who will emerge victorious over you, you devil of hell. When you read your Old Testament, you're meant to ask the question with great anticipation every time you meet a character. Is that him? Is that the hero? Is he the one that God promised? Has he finally come? He's coming, and though it will come at a price, the bruising of his heel, he will crush the serpent. He will rescue his people from the domain of darkness. And so, so it begs uh, the question, why, why is Satan alive and well today? I mean, Jesus crushed the serpent on the cross, right? So, so how is Satan at work in the world as we know it? Why is it that Paul can say uh, in Romans 16... Um, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How do you make sense of that? Well, I'm sure you, you're uh, thinking this as well. You, you can go to the book of Judges and actually get a good picture of this um, because, of course, that's where you'd find the answer to that question. Um, if you remember the story of Gideon, uh, Gideon was a guy who with an army of 300 and the grace of God behind him defeated a Midianite army that was exponentially bigger than his army. Well, one of Gideon's sons was a, a guy by the name of Abimelech, uh, just a crooked, uh, immoral human being, killed all of his siblings so that uh, he could take over the rule and reign of God's people and eventually came into power as a result. And a few years after uh, he took over the rule and reign of God's people, he found himself in a battle. He, he was outside the city walls trying to press his way in. And a woman from the top of the city wall hurled a millstone over the side of the wall, which hit him in the head, um, inflicting a fatal wound. wound. Uh, it, it didn't kill him immediately. Uh, in fact, what he then proceeded to do, as any good chauvinist would do, was to ask his armor bearer to kill him so that it couldn't be said of him that he died at the hands of a woman. That's exactly what happened to Satan when Jesus bled out and died on the cross. The, the millstone, so to speak, the, the fatal wound was inflicted in such a way that, that there is a, a clear trajectory toward death for the evil one. And, and yet, there, there's still this, this realm of the not yet that we live in. Between the time of the inflicting of that fatal blow and, and the last breath of air before the final judgment and death of Satan and, and his army of darkness... And so we live in that land of the, of the not yet, the already and the not yet. Already, yes, Christ has come and has inflicted that, that death blow and, and not yet. So that the church, now you and I get to be a part of bringing light into the domain of darkness. That's what Jesus talked about uh, when he said, I will build my church to Peter and, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You, you do realize that the church is not on the defensive when Jesus says that, it's not like Satan and his army of darkness are using gates as an offensive weapon to bludgeon people, to bludgeon the church. That's not how gates work. Gates are intended to keep people out. What Jesus is saying is that the church will move forward and will emerge victorious under her, under her great conquering king who is leading the troops. The, the, the army of light will emerge victorious over the army of darkness. 
And so uh, we continue to participate in this inflicting death blow that, that began at the cross of Jesus Christ until Jesus returns to set everything right, to make everything sad untrue. Christ our victor. Already, we're only two verses into this morning's passage, and we see the diverse excellencies of God in this passage. Yes, he's a just judge who, who must punish sin. His character is on the line. But he's also a loving father who promises to rescue the very ones who sinned against him. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And all the women said, Amen. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Again, the the curse pronounced here is as certain as the curse pronounced on the serpent. God says not, I I hope to, or my goal is, but rather, I will. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. It's really fascinating, the, the justice of God. Eve, the mother of the living, is cursed with pain in bringing forth life. Every time you bring forth new life, you'll be reminded of the loss of the garden. And secondly, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What what does that mean? That's that's confusing language. Well, Well, God's really kind here because you don't have to fast forward too far in the story to find similar language. In fact, you may not even have to flip pages in your Bible. If you look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, go ahead and take a look at that. If you fast forward the story, Eve gives birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel brings forth a pleasing offering to the Lord. Uh, Cain brings forth an unpleasing offering to the Lord. Cain gets angry, and and God says this uh, to Cain. He says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You see the similar language there to Genesis 3.15? God says to Cain, "Sin, sin wants to master you. Sin wants to rule you, but you must master it. You must rule over it. Similarly, God says to Eve, you shall desire to rule over, to master your husband, but he will master you. He will rule over you. We've already seen a barrier to intimacy between uh, husband and wife, namely in the form of fig leaves, going back to last week's passage. Now we see the entrance of human conflict, especially within the context of covenant marriage that loving and cherishing are replaced with dominating and ruling. There's now a battle of of wills between the man and the woman. Remember God's perfect utopian garden sanctuary of Eden in in Genesis chapter 2? Sinless, loving, strong, moral leadership on Adam's part. Sinless, loving, joyful support of his leadership on Eve's part. No longer does that come easily. There's now the desire on the woman's part to to usurp the man's call to headship, and there's a desire on the man's part to domineer his wife. It explains both chauvinism and feminism in hostile opposition to complementarianism. One of the the glorious and beautiful outworkings of, of the gospel is the return to God's original good design for marriage. Husbands loving their wives, as Paul says in Ephesians, as Christ loved the church sacrificially and gave himself up for her. Wives submitting to their husbands as to the Lord, as to Christ, who is uh, her ultimate king. Mutual love and respect. Only the gospel can empower that as God originally intended it. 
And not just marriage, human conflict extends to all relationships, right? Which is why if you read Genesis 4 in its entirety, that story of Cain and Abel, you encounter the world's first sibling rivalry, which ultimately leads to the first murder in human history. This morning's passage explains to us why relationships are so stinking hard. Why we encounter human conflict at every turn is explained here in Genesis 3. It wasn't always this way, and it won't be this way forever. That's the good news. For those who are in Christ, human conflict will will forever be abolished when Jesus returns. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that. A perfect church that you actually want to be in community group with. And I love my community group, by the way. I wasn't a hit on them. That's just a hit on human conflict altogether. In verse 17, God goes on to say to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. It's fascinating to me that because Adam ate that which is forbidden, he will now struggle to eat. Again, the perfect justice of God. You don't want all the trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food? You got it by the sweat of your brow. Welcome to the land of thorns and thistles. Every time I do yard work, I am reminded of the fall. I don't know about you. I think that great hair band of the 80s got it right. Every rose has its thorn. But, but that wasn't always the case, right? Imagine a world with, with, with all the beauty of creation and no thorns and thistles. That'd be amazing, right? Creation itself actually longs for that, which is an interesting uh, way of laying things out. In Romans 8, Paul says this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us, those image bearers of God who have been redeemed by the person and work of Jesus. He goes on to say, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, namely Adam, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Again, you get that language of of the pain of childbirth actually attached to the, the creation itself as we know it. God's stage. Creation longs to be free from the curse pronounced upon it in Genesis 3, just like you and me. The stage is now less than utopian. God says, you were meant to rule over the earth, and in some sense, the earth is going to rule over you. And and to be crystal clear here, because I I think we get this wrong oftentimes, um, it's not the work itself that's the punishment. Before sin ever entered the world, Adam was commanded to, to work the garden and keep it. That was a part of God's original good design. There's something good about work in and of itself. It's the pain. It's, it's the hardship. It's the frustration associated with the work that comprises the punishment. It's the fact that you could say it this way, that there, there, there won't be a perfect return on investment 
in the wake of the fall, that there will always be more sweat than harvest, more sweat than yield. There's another sense in which man uh, who is meant to rule the earth will now be ruled by the, the earth. This is, this is fascinating. Man will one day die being swallowed up by the very ground that he was meant to exercise dominion over. You ever thought about that? That the wages of sin is not just spiritual death, although that's true. The spiritual umbilical cord between man and God has been severed, but also physical death. We work hard and we die. The author of Ecclesiastes um, actually gets this part of the curse um, right, I think. He paints it well, at least. But, but there is a silver lining here. There, there's a reason. You'll see this in a moment as we close out this chapter of the Bible, why God guards the tree of life. That for man to live in his sinful state forever would be horrific. That there's, there's a sense in which death, yes, it is a curse, but it's also a means of escaping the curse. Think about that. That death is the gateway to the fullness of the presence of Christ. A curse most definitely, but God's grace in the midst of that curse as well. Verse 20. These are words of hope. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. That, that God is, is kind in, in intermingling with his words of judgment, words of hope, words of life. The man names his wife Eve, which means source of life. That, that you get the sense that in the wake of God's judgment and his declaration of this uh, Satan-crushing hero that is to come, that, uh, that Adam buys in to some degree, to this promise. There's a declaration of life here in the midst of death as he names the woman Eve, hope in the midst of despair. Secondly, we see God clothe his people here. And in doing so, there are a couple things that we need to see. Number one, he's making crystal clear that uh, man-made coverings, fig leaves, so to speak, are inadequate. They're inadequate to cover sin and shame. We talked about this last week. If you're in a community group, we talked about this even during the week what some of those fig leaves proverbially might look like in our lives. And yet notice that God doesn't leave them hopeless. He doesn't just say, hey, your fig leaves won't work, so good luck to you. But rather, he provides them with something better than fig leaves, namely animal skins, which begs the question, where, where'd those skins come from? How do you get your hands on animal skins? Answer, bloodshed, the slaughtering of an animal, the, the offering up of a life, which is why the author of Hebrews says in, in chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here we see a foreshadowing not only of the Old Testament sacrificial system, but the foreshadowing of Jesus to come, the ultimate sacrifice uh, through bloodshed for the sins of man. We also see this beautiful picture of Jesus' righteousness gifted to us to wear like a robe before God so that when he looks at us, he declares us righteous, not because we are, but because we're robed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus who lived the life that we could never live. It's Jesus and his righteousness that adequately covers our sin, uh, sin and shame. In verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat forever. All of a sudden, God just stops mid-sentence. 
You know, he knows how this is going to play out, but in the moment of even declaring it, the thought of man living forever in his sinful state is so awful that God stops talking and he goes into action. Verse 23, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we're meant to feel the weight, the loss of Eden, the loss of paradise, the loss of God's perfect utopian garden sanctuary, and and most importantly, the loss of intimacy with God. Adam will still work, but the privilege of of, uh, keeping, of guarding uh, guarding the garden has been taken from Adam and and given to the cherubim, an angel, The cherubim is placed with a sword in hand to keep Adam and Eve out of the garden. Now, this is really fascinating. This is what I mean. The Bible is a literary masterpiece. Can't say that enough. You actually see cherubim separating man from God in another place in Scripture. If you fast forward to the construction of the temple in the book of Exodus, the Israelites are are in the wilderness. That, That tabernacle was divided into two sections. You had the holy place and the holy of holies or the most holy place. The holy place is where the priests would perform their their daily duties. The holy of holies uh, was only entered uh, once a year and only by the high priest. On the day of atonement, he would go in and uh, offer incense and sprinkle the blood of sacrificial animals, both for his sins and the sins of the people, which would appease God's wrath. If you go back to the construction of the tabernacle, a little detail that oftentimes gets overlooked. When the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies was created, cherubim were to be embroidered on that veil as a way of reminding the people, the Israelites, that they couldn't enter into the most holy place, into the presence of God because of their sin. Very similar picture to that of Eden. Man separated from God with cherubim standing in the way. Now let me ask one final question this morning. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? The veil was ripped in two. From top to bottom, completely torn apart. Cherubim, gone. Back into the presence of our God. Jesus has, has made a way for man to be restored back into the presence of God, which is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 can say this, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, there it is, by what? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, that when Jesus's body was torn, so was the veil separating us from God's presence. And he goes on to say, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You can know, not by looking at you, but by looking at him who made a way with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised, he is faithful. In Genesis 3, we experience the loss of the garden, no doubt. Yet Jesus, 
Our sin-conquering, Satan-crushing Savior and King has made a way not only to be restored to Eden, but to be restored to God. In a moment, we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. As you prepare to do so, um, bask in the promise of God, not only made in Genesis 3.15, but fulfilled in Christ. Think about what Christ has done for you in tearing away the veil and removing the cherubim altogether so that you could enter into the presence of God and know God and be known by God. That's incredible. Sit with that, Christian, and then come and take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're not a Christian, my prayer is that the gospel would be compelling to you this morning, that you would... You would feel the weight of the loss of the garden, that you would feel that separation between you and God spiritually, and you would see Christ as the glorious hope of restoring you to God and that you would turn to him in faith this morning. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S. P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.